Hello and welcome to Spotlights. This is the podcast for the Yale Forum on Religion and Ecology. And as usual, I'm your host, Sam Mickey. And this week, I'm really excited to welcome back onto the show, Mallory McDuff. Mallory, thanks for making time for us. Yeah, oh, it's great to be here. So yeah, it must have been about a year and a half ago uh, that uh, we had you on and we were talking about your book, Our Last Best Act, a beautiful book. And somehow you managed to put together another one in a, a very short amount of time, really. And uh, it's a really beautiful book. It's called Love Your Mother, 50 States, 50 Stories, and 50 Women United for Climate Justice. Uh, so I'm excited to chat with you about it. Uh, first, for people who don't know you, you're an author, a mother, an educator, and uh, you teach environmental education at Warren Wilson College, uh, which is just outside of Asheville, North Carolina. And your writing stems from your experience raising children, uh, experience teaching students, and really just embracing the uncertainty of living in a changing climate. Uh, so always enjoy your writing and really like what I've seen from this uh, new book. I've, I've read a little of it, but so much going on. So I guess uh, first, just tell us, you know, what is it? It's a book of climate storytelling, but it's about 50 women, each one representing one of the states in the United States. Exactly. Um, and, you know, both of these books were our last best act um, is a book about the choices we make for our bodies, um, you know, after we die. And, and the, both books were published by Broadleaf Books. And so when I got the contract for um, our last best act, they were interested in two books. And I was interested in writing. So I was like, oh, sure, I can do two books. Um, and, you know, having a goal and having a deadline is, is, is super motivating. And so this book really, um, it stemmed from what you said, this what I'm trying to write from the place I'm trying to write from in my essays and my books is that intersection of everyday life with the climate crisis. And as you said, you know, I'm a mom, I'm a teacher, I'm around young people almost all the time. <laughs> it's like, um, and, and so, you know, my everyday life is I'm not negotiating, you know, treaties or I'm not, you know, a politician my everyday life is what am I going to do when I walk into the classroom and what am I going to cook for dinner? <laughs> and, and, you know, is the teenager talking to me today? Are they not? Um, you know, just like these pretty basic all consuming um, parts of, of, of life and concurrent with that is the reality of the climate crisis. I mean, for right now, it's like a gorgeous day on campus where I live in this uh, little 900 square foot duplex. And yet, you know, we know this gorgeous spring day is the first week of March. I mean, it's hitting everybody, I think, um, in, in the South, at least where I, um, where I reside is like, okay, this is not normal if we love it because it's really beautiful and something is wrong. And so I wrote, um, love your mother. I wanted stories that would be inspiring for my students as well as my daughters. And I wanted a diversity of stories. So for example, if I had a student who came from a rural background um, in, in Idaho, for example, I could 
say, oh my gosh, you know, here's somebody whose work you should look at or whose life you should look at. Um, and, and the funny thing is that I thought, oh, okay, 100 people, that's too many. <laughs> 25 is not enough. And so I cut to 50. And the friend whose idea it was to, to write this specific book, um, her name is Jill Driswicki, she was like, 50 women? Well, of course you're going to do one from each state. You know, that, that's why we need creative friends, right? Because that had not crossed my mind. Um, and so that was the impetus, you know, for looking at one woman from each state. That's cool. Yeah, I like that. And the way that the book is organized is, you know, regionally. So you really get kind of a feeling for the, the places of the United States. Uh, and I, I also like, um, you know, in the introduction, you're talking about all the interviewing that you did for this. And that you kind of started to refer to people as like Miss Maine and Miss Oregon. Yeah. <laughs> and like, oh, we'll have to make a sash for you. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. And it's kind of funny. I don't tell many of my students this because they can be very, um, you know, they're so progressive that sometimes that leans towards judgmental. But I was actually top 10 for Junior Miss of Alabama in, oh, really? in 1984. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't I don't wear that on my sleeve, but, um, at, at the, you know, it, it did become just a way of vernacular for myself. You know, a friend would call and I would be say, you know, I can't talk right now. I'm about to, you know, interview Ms. Kansas or, you know, I'm about to interview Miss Indiana. And so I didn't, I was kind of embarrassed by this because, you know, obviously in a increasingly non-binary world, you know, referring to people by Ms. is, um, you know, not what, not really, it's, it's not common on Warren Wilson campus, uh, but, but it became kind of a funny thing. And as I write in the book, um, Lou Weber, who is one of the women I profiled in the book, and she's got this huge extended family um, in Indiana. And she said her, uh, her whole family was going to, after the book came out, they were going to make her a photovoltaic sash you know, with Miss Indiana, and I write about that in the introduction. So that's been, you know, it's it's been it's been kind of fun to think about. You know, for, for me, a lot of the climate um, coverage that we you know see just online on social media is often from places that um, maybe not a lot of people could relate to. For example, it might be from New York or California. And I grew up in Alabama on the coast of Alabama and now live in North Carolina. And so part of this, you know, my goal was I wanted to write stories about some of the more well-known um, climate leaders uh, from Catherine Hayhoe to Ayanna Elizabeth Johnson. I, I wanted I wanted that name recognition mainly because I wanted to write about them. You know, it was kind of a good excuse. But I also wanted people who were not well-known and more of the people are not like everyday household names if you're in, if you you know read a lot about um, the climate. And that was that was really important to me. I think especially, you know, the the life that I live, you know, and my daughters live, they're not, you know, they go to a, um, a the local public high school. They're they're not um, jetting off to you know LA or DC, you know. Um, and and so so that was a a touch point for me a touchstone rather was to to have 
um, a diversity of geographic regions, uh, obviously with the states, but also a diversity of vocations. Um, half the women are BIPOC. Um, and, and that was, that just kind of, you know, I didn't have a number I was going for. It just kind of ended up that way. Um, and which felt um, appropriate given the disproportionate impact, you know, of the climate on on um, people of color and indigenous folks. So, mm-hmm. but but it was fun. I mean, I was like, oh my gosh, how am I going to finish this? Because I had just, I was still doing speaking events for our last best act and I, I still am. And because um, it's very, it's, that's an issue, sustainability of death, it's never going to go away. Um, so I'm still doing st- speaking events um, for that book. But, you know, I was like, I'm going to get overwhelmed if I think about it. And I have to really use like Anne Lamott's bird by bird. Like for me, it was state by state. <laughs> so I had my list of the states and I just like did not look up, <laughs> you know, just and ultimately you can finish a project that way. Yeah, I, I'm impressed because uh, <laughs> I don't know, I'll try and take on multiple projects like that. And when it's just one ends up going to the back burner. So yeah, well, it's well, really tremendous. And then, yeah, it, it was, I think the other reason that it was, um, you know, that I was able to do it was because I was, um, you know, with with every little profile, every story I was writing, you, for, for many of them, I was you know, gaining new friends, you know, and so the process was actually mirroring what I was hearing in their stories. I mean, these women are really good at working together. I mean, like collaboration was like one of the major themes of the book to me. And so as I was you know, talking to people, I, I realized we would talk about their, their work. And then suddenly, you know, we'd be talking about whatever, having teenagers in COVID and, you know, or just like life stuff. And, and I realized, okay, wait, we're becoming allies for each other. And this is the writing and research process is mimicking what I was finding in the stories, which was like, you know, really cool. Yeah. I appreciate that so much as, you know, as an academic, I, you know, we all struggle to make writing that's meaningful, that can connect with people and to see a book like this, that really does mirror the kind of collaboration that climate justice is all about of, you know, building alliances, building solidarity uh, making it about our everyday lives and not just high-minded concepts. I'm like, oh, this is now this is the kind of writing we need. You know, it's important that people are still doing like just boring monographs and stuff. We still need that. No offense to those folks, but uh, this kind of there's something that's just a little more. Uh, I don't know. I guess relational about it. It doesn't feel like it's just about you and your ideas. It is about all these women. So I wonder right. if you could say a little bit more about the fact that it's women. Because, of course, along with the disproportionate impacts that BIPOC suffer due to climate change, uh, eco-feminists have been saying for decades also, we really need to think about the central role that women play in these kind of struggles. Right. And, and you know, we know that 80% of the people who are displaced by climate disasters um, are women and girls. And so that, that disproportionate impact is, um, is seen on women globally. And one of the books that really inspired me was um, All We Can Save, which is an anthology I'm sure that you're familiar with, edited by Catherine Wilkinson and Ayana Elizabeth Johnson. And it's an anthology of contributed writings. Um, And 
you know, one of the lines in that book that, that really was a just a beacon for me was, you know, the climate crisis is not gender neutral. Um, and so, so that really was a, a driving force for me. And again, this friend, Jill Jerswicki, who is, it was, you know, really helped me to center that um, at the beginning of the project. Um, she is, she's, she's from Wisconsin, um, from a small town, Appleton, Wisconsin, you know, which is a very small town, um, but she's living in Rome, Italy, mm. and she's a gender responsive specialist with Jesuit refugee services. services. Mm. So she's traveling, you know, to refugee camps um, in Malawi, you know, all over um, the continent of Africa and seeing that the impacts of that displacement, you know, firsthand and, specifically as it relates to the education of, of girls. Um, and, you know, I, in the introduction, I also point to, you know, that the importance of education of girls as being, and women as being, you know, one of those major factors that um, can, can help to mitigate the climate crisis. And Catherine Wilkinson, you know, some of her original, um, one of her TED Talks for which I, is she's you know, most well known was about that, that intersection of gender um, and, and climate. And, and so that, that really, you know, that was like the, um, that was the magnet of, of the book, you know, was, um, was, was to identify, um, people who identify as women from each state and then, and then write, uh, write their story. And there, there is, um, at least one non-binary, um, um, indigenous leader in the book mm -hmm. as well. But you know, I when I when I started, I mean, for me, like structure is, I'm, I'm like a Capricorn. <laughs> you know, I like have to have the structure before I can have the creativity, um, which is you know not everybody's not like that. But for me, I really, you know, I had to figure out like how am I going to structure each of these stories so there there's kind of a parallel format that the reader may not even um, be aware of, but that could allow me to package each story in about three pages. Um, and so how I did that was, uh, or how I decided to do it, you know, was I you know, started like in the middle um, with, you know, that the, that person, um, you know, in the middle of the work that they were doing and then shifted to, you know, their background, how did they get there? And then you know, ended with, you know, what's, what are their next steps? What, what is this, what, you know, what's this impact? Where is this going, their work? So, so I kind of had that roadmap for every story where I knew I wanted to open with the action, reflect to their past, and then move toward um, next steps. And, and so for, for me, that, that was uh, super helpful, you know, as I talked, talked to people. Yeah, I like that a lot, uh, the kind of narrative arc, especially because, I mean, e each of these people could you could write so much oh, about and yeah. you know interviewing them that's so much material from the interview so that's one of the really impressive things reading this is like how did you condense all of this into just a few pages per person it's so uh like tightly succinct so yeah that that structure seems to be uh kind of the secret sauce to, to keeping yeah, it, it know, digestible me. yeah it, it helped me and there were to be clear um there were some people that were either so well known or you know, just not accessible. There were some people that I ended up using um, secondary sources to write their story. Um, 
you know, for example, Rihanna Gunn Wright, who was you really created the the Green New Deal. Um, she she wrote me back and was like, "I'm really busy now, and you know, whatever you write is fine." <laughs> so <laughs> and so you know, I have the sources for each story in the back. Um, and that, so there were some people that I used, you know, and I'm upfront with that in the um, in the author's note in the beginning. But um, but the majority of people I was able to to interview, or else they you know, read their story and made changes for accuracy. Oh, nice. That's good. So yeah. Yes. So you circulate so, the stories back to the interviewees. Right. I mean, there was one like Amanda Gorman. I wrote about, I, I really wanted to write about a poet and I wanted to write about a younger poet. And so I wrote about her for California um, and focusing on her poetry that does, um, you know, have the theme, have themes of, of climate. And, you know, she's, I could not get a hold. She, she's so well known and there's so much written about her. Um, so she was one person who, you know, didn't read their story, but most everybody else, um, you know, read their story and, you know, made changes based for, for accuracy um, or whatnot. So, so that was, yeah, it was a really, it was honestly a process of like, really hitting people up on social media and you people didn't know me from anybody else, you know? And so, so some of the people I had connections to, but, but some, I was just like on Instagram, like I'm all hit you up with your DM. Um, And (laughs) yeah, the, the generosity of people to, to, to respond is um, crazy. Yeah, these are people who have full lives. Um, and so I was really um, touched by the generosity of people to be honest and say, you know, I can't, t- you know, just to be honest with where they were, but in most cases they were, you know, just open to either being interviewed or reading their story or yeah. And that was, yeah. um, that, that was uh, really cool because we're all yeah. busy. Maybe that's like, because we're women, we just say yes. (laughs) That's a good point. Yeah, very agreeable. Like, okay, I'll I'll take on the extra project. Generous, it's for the cause, yeah. (laughs) That's true, yeah. I'd be curious if writing a book that was, you know, 50 men, one from each state, (laughs) how how many of those emails and and DMs would you get a response to and how generous are people going to be with their time? I'd, I'd be curious. Yeah. We're generalizing, but, but I I do think people were, um, yeah, these women were amazingly, um, generous and you know, the, the, it was important to me to have a diversity of vocations and, and because I do think it's going to take, you know, a million different solutions it's not like one thing. So, and, and I think that, um, so just to say like I had, there's poets, farmers, we have a lot of farmers. I've had at least four different farmers, an oceanographer, students, um, a physician, community organizers, a sculptor, um, writers, you know, just a death doula, not a death doula, birth doula. I'm getting my books confused. Um, attorneys. So, just the diversity of ways we can enter into um, the climate movement, I think really impressed me. Yeah. Right. So many times people think, Oh, uh, the only way is to be a climate activist or environmental lawyer. And it's like, no, anything, whatever, whatever you're doing in life, there's a way to kind of turn it toward climate justice. 
Uh, so right. yeah, I think that's really inspiring. And, and the fact that it's all 50 states too. It's like, no, it's not just coastal elites who care about these things. It's right. really everybody. It's not just Democrats or something. It's like, no, most people want a clean world to live in. Uh, so yeah, you really get a sense of how universal these issues are. Uh, and it, it somehow doesn't seem heavy. It's, it's a very uh, hopeful book. It's very positive, solutions-oriented. Mm-hmm. And I don't know, I mean, similarly with your last book, you're, you're dealing with heavy topics. And, uh, and in this case, it's uh, very uplifting. So uh, personally, that's one of the reasons I'm already recommending this book to so many people. Uh, I know people who are very distressed about climate change and and the only option is to just not think about it out of sight, out of mind and that kind of thing. It's like, no, there's a way to think about it that can actually be uplifting and empowering. And I think this book does that very well. Well, you know, I, um, you know, particularly being around college students all the time, like I go to, I go to work and I'm around college students. I come home and I, you know, I have a 24 and a 17 year old. So I feel like I'm, I'm with this demographic a lot. Um, and actually my older daughter just went to Peace Corps just two days ago. Um, so, so we're, we're, uh, down, down one in the 900 square foot little rental on campus. (laughs) But, but so much of what I feel like I do is trying to not deny like their um, feelings of overwhelm or being overwhelmed. Cause I feel that too, you know, that book, Britt Way's book, Generation Dread, you know, points to this, this generation um, and, and the impact of, um, of the climate on anxiety, on mental health. Um, and, but, but the point is not like, okay, you end there. Um, for for me, I've really seen with my students, at least, that, you know, engaging in um, local community um, action is, is kind of the way to harness that anxiety into something that, um, that is positive. And in our case, since I teach environmental education, you know, we're working in, we're working in local schools, or we're doing workshops for adults. Um, and it's very hands-on, very experiential, um, you know, but even with all that, I mean, I've been at Warren Wilson and I taught for a year at Colorado state before that, but I've been at Warren Wilson for 23 years. Wow. I mean, that's like longer than most of my students have been alive. <laughs> <laughs> so which they remind me of, um, <laughs> But even with that, like as a vocation, I mean, half the time I'm like, I don't know if what I'm doing is making a difference. I mean, you know, what the heck? I don't know. Um, and so in a, in a large part, I think this book was also for me, you know, as a way to say the, the everyday work of engaging where your values intersect with the climate crisis, that, that work in collective can make a difference. So the idea that, you know, the individual is going to have this huge impact, I think that to me makes me want to just like, you know, like get a pizza and like zone out on Twitter for two hours. (laughs) Um, But the idea that I can engage and find people that share values that intersect with, um, with climate and then that collective force can make a difference. That's where 
you know, I really felt momentum in doing these interviews um, and, and writing these stories. I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's just amazing what, what these, what these women are, have, have done and not individually, but how they've harnessed this, you know, collective, collective action. You know, I think about um, Tara Huska um, from Minnesota, who she's an Ojibwe attorney and has been really you know, instrumental in, in trying to stop the line three tar sands pipeline. And um, I think about in, in Alaska, um, indigenous groups who have really been instrumental with pressuring banks to divest from fossil fuel infrastructure. And now we see coming up March 21st, Bill McKibben's group, Third Act, they, it's, you know, people over 60 and they're gathering and they are pressuring banks to divest from fossil fuel projects. Um, And so this is like, to me, it's like, okay, this is, you know, something that starts as one thing, then generates momentum that then has a collective impact. Um, and, and if we don't believe in that, I think we really are screwed because, I mean, we know that it's like 100 companies are responsible for 71% of global greenhouse emissions. So with that, so like, what the hell? Like, yeah, like you know, you know, open a Dr. Pepper and just call it a day. Um, but, but if we can see, like watching that third act, I just got a call yesterday from our an Asheville group, you know, um, affiliate of third act and they're organizing um, an action in downtown Asheville and they're walking into the banks and, you know, bank of America. And, and they are saying, we, we will withdraw our money or, you know, they're, even if somebody doesn't want to withdraw our money, they're, they're collectively putting pressure on these institutions. And, um, it's just to me to realize, okay, all of that is is not it just didn't like germinate from nowhere. You know, it started from people, hey, this this tactic, you know, maybe it's not working, are pressuring the politicians. So let's go after the banks. You know, and it's um it's just amazing to see the um the growth of that, of those different tactics. Yeah, right. And it's such a short amount of time. So much has changed in the last five years, last 10 years, you know, compared to, I mean, think of somebody like Bill McKibben, you know, he was working on this right when we hit 350 parts per million. He was there. Yeah. And, Sorry, uh, oh, yeah. And, and then gradually you start to really see a movement. And you, especially in this book, you're like, well, the whole United States is really changing. And we don't necessarily see that in our overall, you know, fossil fuel emissions, that, but we see this grassroots movement happening of different kinds of organizations, different people, different communities, and it really is taking off. It's so important for people to know that. Otherwise, it just looks like bad news. It looks like, oh, the climate's just getting worse. It's like, well, yeah, of course, you know, we have these problems, but the solutions are happening, like like catching yeah. on like, uh, you know, like wildfire, which is probably a bad metaphor. <laughs> yeah. Well, <and> it's- <laughs> You know, I mean, I remember um, Bill McKibben has come to Warren Wilson twice since I've been here. And I he came right after he started 350.org. And, you know, he was walk. I mean, this was years ago. Um, and he was this was like pre everybody had a pre cell phone, really. I mean, they existed, but not. So he was walking around with an iPad, you know, communicating with people all over the world. It was like a big 
collective art installation all over the all over the world. Um, and you know, I mean, I, I think it's yeah, it's 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 like there there is movement and there is you know obstruction, you know, from and so reconciling those two, I think, is is for me is the the tenuous you know piece. Like, how can you okay, like ten years ago when I was you know trying to write about climate, and if you put the word climate in their title, like publishers didn't didn't want it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, so there is there there is an awareness, um, and and there are you know these huge institutional and system systemic you know obstacles, and, and so recognizing that it's not going to be all one or the other. Yeah. You know, I, I think that's the you know that that's what I tr- try to talk to students about. Um, but honestly, for me, I really think with with teaching that I've I've, I've kind of re- not reverted, but I'm. I think I'm. I I am more into students doing community-based projects than talking about it a lot. You know, we just we get in there and we're doing things because I just feel like that is they're they're learning more skills. They're in their heads a lot and on social media. I mean, just as, I mean, I am too. Um, so so that it, being in community partnerships and and, and seeing those grassroots um, grassroots impacts um, is kind of where I've leaned into with my teaching, but, but that's, that's kind of um, diverting a bit. Yeah. Well, it really speaks to, you know, as you said, one of the main themes of the book that kind of just happened organically was collaboration and that it is like one of the key solutions to the climate crisis is don't just get stuck in your head and don't just think of yourself as an individual Think of yourself right. as a community member. And yeah. we do always get stuck. Oh, there's massive systemic change needs to happen, but I'm just one individual. And we forget there's that nice middle ground called community. And when right. you're engaging community, that's that's how real change happens. Yeah, you know, I I um there were three kind of take homes that that from from for me from all this engagement with these women and and one was the collaboration piece. Um, but the the first part was actually like communication, mm-hmm. and I think and Catherine Hayhoe, who's you know, one of the best known climate scientists and climate communicators, you know, in the um, and definitely in the U.S. and also in, in the world, you know, she keeps saying the most important thing you can do about the climate is to talk about it, and and that it kind of freed me from feeling like oh shoot, like you know, like you know, look at the plastic in my recycling bin, like, oh my God, you know, like that whole individual thing that is so messed up. Um, but so when, you know, if you listen to Catherine Hayhoe's TED talk where she talks about the most important thing you can do about climate is to talk about it. You know, I really took that as just like this personal <laughs> mission <laughs> and just talking about climate in the grocery store with you know, I go to the same checkout person and she, she and I are like, you know, about the same age and, and we always chat and, you know, the, the, the interactions in our daily life, like that is something I can, I don't have to be a scientist to like explain climate science to like talk about spring being like crazy. Wow. This is like really early. 
you know, I can, I can talk about that with, with anybody and I don't, I don't need to, you know, be some expert. I can just be a person in yeah. this, in this community. So the communication was, um, is, is a big one that I found in all of the, all of the stories. And, and Catherine Hayhoe also says, you know, that most people don't hear family and friends talk about the climate in their everyday lives. Um, and, and that's changing a bit. Um, but, but that is really like empowering to me because I can talk you know? <laughs> like, um, and, and, and talk without having to be an expert. So the communication was one thing. Um, and then the collaboration, like joining an organization or joining with people that share values that intersect with the climate. And, and then the third is what you mentioned, um, you know, like just community. And, and sometimes that can mean pressuring elected officials in your community because we we tend to think about you know oh who's in DC but the you know county elected officials the local elected elected officials state elected officials they are may having a, a huge impact on climate decisions um, so so that pressure in community and advocating for values in community um, is really that third you know not just collaborating community but also um, you know, putting putting pressure and letting elected officials know that this matters. Yeah, yeah. People really forget that they're like, oh, it's you know, the president has to do something. Like, actually, you can do a tremendous amount at the local level, and yeah, local politics really does really does matter. Um, well, and, and I, you know, I'm yeah. Go, go ahead. Oh no, please. I was going to say that I was like, I can say that, and also I'm also somebody that you know might see. Oh, you need to call. You know, county commissioners, and and I'm the first person to be like, oh God, I got to go to class. <laughs> you know, I'm I'm busy. Um, but but just the, what I saw in these in these women were those three those three things: a communication, collaboration, and community. Um, and, and that really it made me realize, okay, these things. It's nobody's asking me, like you said, to you know protest every day you know, in downtown Asheville, because I, I can't do that. You know, I can go to a few protests, but, and I do, but, but those three things, like I can do those things. Yeah. Yeah. So. I like uh, collaboration, community, communication. They're all uh, co words. It's all just oh, about that, being with, right? Oh, that's true. I, oh my God. I'm, that's really, <laughs> I didn't realize that's true. I'm going to write that down, Sam. <laughs> yeah, because when you think about, uh, you know, the kind of eco-feminist point that women yeah. tend to have a kind of relational ethic and things, it's it's just about being with and yeah. uh, that we're not alone. And uh, yeah, not everybody has to be like a full-time activist and those kinds of things. You don't have to be out there protesting and marching all the time. Each of us are going to have our own way to be with. And whoever that is, whatever your vocation is, whatever part of the country you're in or part of the world, uh, we all have that that leverage just be with the people around you and talk. <laughs> right. You know, um, one of the things that um, was really interesting to me um, was research that, um, that showed, you know, we tend to think in this country, not necessarily in other countries, but research that showed, you know, we, in the U S we, we think about political affiliations as, you know, consistent with, um, 
you know, I don't want to say beliefs, but um, attitudes toward climate change. And, and that is true. But the research also um, shows that political identities are not necessarily our strongest identity. Mm. Um, so if we can connect with people, not necessarily Democrats or Republicans, for, but for example, I'm a member of an Episcopal church. Um, so, you know, there are values that are consistent with my, with my faith that I can connect with you know, and without talking about politics, you know, without even knowing what people's political identity is. And so if I can connect as a person of faith, faith, you know, caring for creation, then that is one, one strategy for, um, for circumventing this, you know, what, what is true, this political, you know, deep political um, divide. And I think for me, like before reading that, I just, I thought about, oh, the political divide, it's like, done, like I can't do anything about it, but to, to think that I can connect with like parents, you know, who want their kids to drink clean water and breathe clean air, that's irregardless of political affiliation. Yeah. No, Unless you're like point. an extremist. I mean, you know, um, that's, <laughs> that's, that's true. but there were, there were several um, stories that highlighted this organization, Moms Clean Air Force. Um, you know, which is a group of, it's a national group, um, but of mothers who protecting clean air and clean water for their children. I mean, that is a, that's their number one value. And that is yeah. intersectional with climate. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I forget the number. It was something like eight to 10 million people die per year due to uh, air pollution related to fossil fuel production, just yeah. fossil fuel production, not other kinds of air pollution, just the fossil fuel production is already killing millions. Right. So it's like, yeah, it's, uh, you know, it's not about necessarily saving nature. It's kind of like the Catherine Aho book, saving us, mm -hmm. right? It's like, right. no, this is about us. Like, do you want your kids to have clean air? They're like, oh yeah, that's you'll get bipartisan agree <laughs> agreement on that. Most people want. We hope. <laughs> I know, right? right? Except for a few extremists, yeah. there. Right. There are, there's always going to be those people, but yeah, for right. the most part. And I like that point that our political identities are uh, aren't necessarily our strongest. That's something like your faith, or I would even think talking to farmers. And it's like mm -hmm. this is just our land. This doesn't, you know, who cares about left or right on the political spectrum? We're just trying to take care of our land here. Right. Right. Or the re you know the region you're from. I mean, that's yeah. another uh, strong. Um, identity first for, for many people. Yeah. I think, uh, you know, I grew up in, in Texas and currently living in the San Francisco Bay area. And a lot of times when I tell people I'm from Texas, they're like, well, how would you ever get in, interested in the environment? I'm like, oh, they, yeah. can, they care about their environment in their own way. And it's like, well, oh, yeah. it's not Cal California doesn't own environmental concern and people yeah. are just shocked to learn that sometimes. Oh, no, totally. Yeah, my sister is, uh, well, she grew up in Alabama, but she and her um, husband lived in in Georgia for, you know, uh, he grew up in Georgia, but they now, he's a uh, transportation planner for the city of Seattle, and my sister teaches first grade, and, you know, people are like, what, you're a Democrat, and you're from Alabama? Like, <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's just... Yeah, and it, but you know that's that's part of um, yeah part of this bringing it back to the book too is that part of the this book is I wanted to um, I don't know like not dispel stereotypes 
but explore uh, affinities, you know, that were across um, across regions. One of the stories that I love the most, and have, you know, I'm I'm now like pitching essays that are related to the book, and um, and I've used the example a few times of um, Anna Jane Joyner who is, um, she lives in Alabama and she used to live in Asheville. So I knew her, mm. um, you know, when she, when she lived, uh, in, in Asheville and, and she, she did like creation care work, um, you know, like 10 years ago and, and is now she started, a um, a organization called good energy, uh, which is a great name. That's good. And, yeah, <laughs> anytime you hear a good name, it's like, oh, yeah, that's, that's that was some good, good brain work there. Um, but so Anna Jane lives in Perdido Beach, um, Alabama, which is right on the coastline, which is where I grew up, like, you know, sailing and swimming and you know, just really being in the water. And a lot of people before, like, before the hurricanes, people didn't know Alabama had a coastline, but they do now. Um, and right. the oil spill, the oil spill that, but, um, but this, Anna Jane's Good Energy Project, um, they, she's, what they are doing is they are consulting and educating Hollywood film um, and TV producers to integrate realistic, accurate climate narratives mm. into their storylines, into their existing plots. And so, you know, she has experienced you know, hurricanes on the coast where she had to evacuate in the middle of a hurricane. I mean, just, you know, really um, traumatic natural disasters. And she has said, she said to me, you know, how is it that I had this year, a particular year, um, you know, where there were however many hurricanes there were, but all the TV and movies I've seen have no, it's like, it's not even happening. And, And she's not, or if it does, it's like this huge apocalyptic, you know, right. craziness. And so it's been so interesting to follow her story because good energy has, um, they've, they've put out a guide. It's like a, a guidebook, a playbook it's called to, um, to climate storytelling, you know, in, in TV and film, and they're getting real traction and, and, you know, big name stars who are, um, you know, promoting it. And anyway, it's just been, it's just like fascinating. Okay. That is a big impact because what we consume impacts who we are. Yeah. I mean, not what we consume, like, you know, the media we consume. Yeah. Yeah. So anyways. No, that's big. Yeah. So, yeah, so that's super, super interesting. That's very interesting. Yeah, I'll have to, I'll have to keep up with that. Yeah, because I would imagine plenty of actors and scriptwriters are like, oh yeah, we we're trying to write better stories. So having a little playbook to to facilitate oh, yeah. that, what a, that's a fantastic idea. Well, and it's not just she's she's not just trying to be like, oh, you're going to have a whole plot line that's climate, but but you know that's one approach. But also, you know, how can you um, intersperse climate threads into, um, you know, into whatever the existing story is. And, and they did a, they did a study, they commissioned a study, um, to, to look at, you know, what percentage of scripted TV and, um, and, and movies had any reference to global warming, climate change, and it was negligible. Hmm. Um, and so their goal, I mean, they have a quantitative goal to, to increase that amount, you know, about 50%. And I can't remember the year, but so, you know, it's a measurable goal and they've got a a qualitative and quantitative product that they're 
um, and to, that they're you know marketing to an audience that actually wants to do the right thing. Yeah, that's fantastic. So, what a great example of uh, you know the best thing you can do about climate change is talk about it. Yeah, yeah. I know. Like, yeah, it's so so fascinating. So that's so that's been fun to like amplify. I mean, she doesn't need my help amplifying her story, but but it's been fun to to write about someone from Alabama that's doing that work that it kind of is coming back to our stereotypes. You know, people might think, Oh, that person's going to be in California. Yeah. Well, no, she actually, must be in Hollywood or something. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, so anyway, that's kind of neat. Yeah, no, I think so. Very neat. And, you know, really speaks to what your book is all about, which is climate storytelling. You know, that we talk a lot about communication in general, but there's something really powerful about story. Mm-hmm. So I wonder if you could reflect on that a little bit, because uh, there's so many ways you could have profiled these people. It could have been um, more like just biographies of them, right? And uh, you could have approached it more like a climate scientist or something. And But instead, you know, the focus is story, where you think about, you know, the person's past, what they're doing now, and then what their future is. You know, stories are always like that. You have that past, present, and future. So right. story, I mean, as a, as a writer in general, you know, uh, the boundary between storytelling versus just t- talking about facts is, you know, can be blurred a little, but it's so important to, to lean on story. Uh, mm-hmm. So so where's where's storytelling in your life? Where's, uh, why, why storytelling for this book? Stories, right. narratives. Well, I think I'm from the South, <laughs> so like, you are too. <laughs> um, yeah, so I, I think story is how I how I learn, how I um, you know communicate. But but it's not it wasn't really about me. I mean, I think that that but I think I think that's kind of the the lens that I you know brought to this project. It's interesting though. I just read an interview with with Anna Jane Joyner, and she said, "I mean, she's you know I know her personally, but I just read another interview from by her with her, and and she actually said she's leaning away from the term climate storytelling, yeah. which is interesting. Um, that that she's now ta- just talking about how to to integrate climate into the existing story, mm-hmm. you know, um, and so for me with, um, you know, when I talk to these, to these women, you know, I guess as a, just as a person, I mean, not necessarily like as a writer or as a teacher, like just as a person, like I'm just like hyper curious about people's stories. Um, you, you know, like I'm, I wish I could turn off, but I am the person that if I'm at a restaurant or a bar, like I'm listening even when I'm not trying to listen, but I'm, I hear other people's stories and then want to share them with, you know, my children who are not necessarily interested. <laughs> um, so, so I think that that lens is, you know, how we've shared, you know, knowledge and wisdom, um, you know, over, over years. And the research does also support the fact that people learn and remember through stories. Um, so, so I just, I probably had no other way um, to, to enter into these women's lives than to try to tell a story um, and, and, and to try to, you know, I, I was working to try to tell a story that people, somebody 
some readers might be able to see themselves in. Right, you know? right. That's a that's a good way to put it. That with with a story, you can kind of see yourself in the story, and like your yeah. part, you can kind of think, oh yeah, I, I can see myself in that context or playing these different roles. And yeah, there's something about it that that facts by themselves just don't motivate people in the same way. There's something about stories right. that'll that'll get to the heart. Uh, so yeah, yeah. My, yeah. My editor um, at Broadleaf, actually, you know, when she was re reading all of the 50 stories, um, you know, she'd come back to some and say, oh, this one, like, has heart, you know, and, and this one feels like it's more like biography. You need to go back and give it the energy, right. you, you know, and um, and so, so, so that is something that, you know, we, we collectively tried to tried to do. So I would nice. go back and yeah. I, you know, how do you write something that tugs at someone um, that has, yeah. you know, that's, that's the goal as, as a writer, I guess. Yeah. I think that would, it could be something we would add to the Catherine Hayhoe statement that, you know, it's best thing to do is talk about it and maybe talk about it in a way that tugs on the heart and that, that right. particular, we need to inform the brain and all that stuff, of course, but something, you know, seems so crucial about making sure that we can we can tell it as a story and that people feel moved and uh right. then then they will care once people start or to they, think about what yeah. they care about then we can talk about what we care about we can talk about how to make the world the more beautiful place that we all know right. is possible uh so yeah yeah it's empowering well and just to to share the uh, ayana elizabeth johnson who i is um is miss new york <laughs> um, She's about to have a book come out, and it's called uh, one of the the subheading, I believe, is you know, what if we got this right? Um, That's good. Yeah, and it's going to be a it's going to you know be a great book because she's been working on these issues for for her whole you know her whole life. Yeah. Um, but but I, that that question, uh, you know, I, I sit with that question as a different way to to look at what we're facing. Yeah. Oh, I like that a lot. And what if we got this right? Uh, well, I think uh, the kind of work that you know, you're sharing with us is a good example of how to get there. Once we start thinking about, wait a second, look at the whole country, look at the stories that are out there. We might be able to get this thing right. Fingers crossed. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it doesn't hurt. I'll, I'll take a couple of crossed fingers. Yeah. Every, every little toes. bit helps. Yeah, get those toes in there. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's good that's well i can't think of a better note to end on that's not <laughs> nice hopeful hopeful note we might be able to get this right keep your fingers crossed and keep talking about it <laughs> well geez mallory thanks so much uh for sharing your time with us and for putting this book together uh it's it's really quite a treasure thank you sam and uh and thanks to everybody for tuning in uh, we'll be back with some more conversations for you later. And in the meantime, take care and be well. Mm -hmm.